and welcome to another edition of St. Paul's Letters to America. I'm your host, Ray Gerard. With me in studio this morning, my co-host, your co-host, Mr. Bob Hennekes. Bob, welcome. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm lovely. The sun is warming us up a little bit. It's We're sort of coming out of hibernation. It's a, it's so a the nice... morning's lovely. I thought you were saying that you were lovely. No, not no. by any stretch of the imagination okay. or any definition of the word. <laughs> uh, well, you, you got that lovely kind of look inside. That's that, that's exactly where it is. Okay, I'm going to leave it right there. I'm not there gonna, you go. Not going to go any further. There you go. <laughs> uh, all right. So this is St. Paul's Letters to America, and this is the program that asks, you know, what if St. Paul wrote a letter uh, to the U.S. of A. He, you know, he wrote a bunch of letters. Why not us, right? Um, so if he did, if he was still here today, and he could write a letter to us, and, and did write a letter to us, what would he tell us? What message would he want? To give us? Well, if you've ever wondered that, never, you know, kind of contemplated that, what would that be like? Well, you came to the right place. You know why? We can answer that question for you. We can tell you exactly what St. Paul would have written, and we're going to tell you that today. Um, and there's a very simple reason why. Because what he wrote, what he thought, what he believed, what he preached, you know, what he did 2,000 years ago, he wouldn't change. He would tell us exactly the same things today. Now, you know, with our modern mindset and the way we look at things, we may not sometimes um, take his letters and see how they apply to us, but they do. And each week we examine how they do. And we always do it in the context of something that's going on in our society, in our culture. And we ask, how can we apply St. Paul's writings to this type of event, and, you know, how are we to understand the world around us? So that's where we're about here on this program. And uh, this week, um, we're going to talk about um, social conditions, not a particular event, not any kind of singular uh, news event that just happened yesterday or the day before. No, this is sort of a social phenomenon that's been ongoing, slowly progressing. And it's the change in the American family. There's an article I came across uh, by a, a famous, uh, well-known uh, columnist and author, David Brooks. And he wrote a letter, in, uh, excuse me, he wrote a, um, I'm fixated on letters. I was thinking of, I'm thinking of St. Paul too much. Well, I guess you can't think that's, of St. Paul. You can't think of St. Paul. You can't think of St. Paul too That's much. a good thing. It's, it's a wonderful thing. So, uh, anyways, he wrote an article in The Atlantic about two years ago, um, and it was called The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. Now, most people think the nuclear family is a beautiful thing, that it's a mirror image of um, God's relationship with himself. It's, it's a mirror image of the Trinity. Matter of fact, uh, John Paul II's Theology of the Body makes that case, as, as others have also um, you know, seeing you know, seeing that same kind of relationship um, that exists in the family as the relationship that exists inside the Trinity. You've got the Father, you've got the Son, you've got the Holy Ghost. Um, you know, I mean, in a in a American family, in a in a nuclear family, you have obviously a father figure. Um, you have uh, you have a child. Well, I don't know if you interpret that to the Holy Spirit and maybe Jesus. I I don't know how you. You know, how exactly you would um, 
you know, correlate, you know, the various, you know, figures in the Trinity to the various figures in the, uh, in the family. I think John Paul did an explanation of that. So if you really want an explanation of that, <laughs> go to his theology of the body. Um, but anyways, um, it's, you know, it's, it's very similar in that, you've got, for example, you've got three people, and there's this circular kind of love that each person gives and each member of the family receives. It's a circular love. And what's, what's a cir- uh, circle sim- uh, symbolic of? Something that does. You should know this, Bob. You're the, you're the engineering guy, the science guy. Um, right? It, it's something that doesn't end. It just keeps going and going. Um, so anyways, uh, the nuclear family is a, a blessed thing. Why would the nuclear family be a mistake? And when I first came across this article, I was thinking, okay, well, this guy's out to lunch. But then I read further, and he's got a point. And uh, here's, what, uh, here's what he writes. He writes, for example, of a Thanksgiving scene, uh, a common family experience on Thanksgiving. He says, the scene is one many of us have somewhere in our family history. Dozens of people celebrating Thanksgiving or some other holiday are on a makeshift stretch of family tables. You have siblings, cousins, aunts, uncles, great aunts, great aunts, great angst. Well, maybe. If you get enough family members usually, together. Usually, usually that's the case. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's just this hodgepodge of all these, these people, different ages um, and, and different personalities. But it's this big, warm, hopefully happy family. Um, and uh, he relates this, for example, to the 1990 American movie called Avalon. And, uh, you know, originally that was the experience of the This is an story of an immigrant family that came to America. And originally this type of Thanksgiving dinner with this big extended family was very uh, representative of the family in this movie. But uh, Mr. Brooks continues, but as the movie goes along, the extended family begins to split apart. Some members move to the suburbs for more privacy and space. By the 1960s, there's no extended family at Thanksgiving. It's a young father and mother and their son and daughter eating turkey off trays in front of the television. He said this decentralization of the family has continued even further today. And once families at least gathered around a single television, he says now each person has their own screen. And so what he's really writing about in this article is the disintegration of the family. He talks about the nuclear family as a mistake in terms of discarding um, an appreciation for a bigger family. And, you know, nowadays the term extended family has come to mean, well, for example, um, you have a husband and wife, they divorce, each one of them then perhaps remarries and they have new partners. And so your extended family... You know, your extended family is one where a child growing up then has, what, a mother, a stepmother, a father, a stepfather, um, and then it continues to the next generation where you're gonna, ha- where one child's gonna have two or three people they call grandfather and two or three people they call grandmother, and so the family just becomes more and more extended. And if there's love in that family, there's obviously good. Um, you know, but this is this is what he's talking about, that. The nuclear family, where you have just a mother and a father and a child, uh, something that is more isolated, where 
you know, we have uh, people that have maybe moved apart from one another to the suburbs, taken jobs in different cities, et cetera, et cetera, because people want to, ex- you know, um, explore um, their careers. Uh, they make, you know, life choices uh, of this sort or another, or people, you know, get divorced because they want to express their own individuality or explore their own individuality to a higher degree, and it becomes more about me and myself and that sort of thing. And uh, so if the, if the nuclear family is, is just about that, where you move away, you separate yourself from other members of your family uh, in order to pursue you know, personal goals, you know, then there's something you know, less inclusive about all of that. And so that's really what he's talking about. But the family concept itself, as he goes on and on in this, uh, in this uh, article, is really what he values. He talks about the fact that, um, you know, uh, when we lose a family, when we lose the support of a family, it's not good. Uh, for example, from 1970 to 2012, households consisting of married couples with kids has been cut in half. Um, and then there's a whole host of other statistics. By 19, 1960, Roughly 4% of children were born to unmarried women. Now about 40% are. Um, And, you know, there are dilatory effects that come from this. He said, on average, children with single parents or unmarried cohabitating parents tend to have worse health outcomes, worse mental health outcomes, less academic success, and more behavioral problems. And this is not just, you know, opinionating. This is all, I mean, there are multiples, many, many studies, numerous studies, that have, you know, exp- you know, examined these particular effects. In 2003, for example, there was a study that showed that 12%, 12%, a tenth, more than a tenth of kids in America have had at least three parental partnerships before the age of 15. So those types of things, you know, um, yeah, they're extended families, but... You know, it's a, there's also there's a lack of stability, um, a lack of continuity that exists in those kinds of relationships. And that can be, you know, disquieting, disturbing. I mean, if you're a young child, you want to know that, you know, the world, that there's order. I mean, that's the wonderful thing about having a belief in God. That's that you believe that there is an order to things. If you don't have that comfort, that security— what are you left with? That then there's disorder. Uh, kids are kids are at least for me. When I watched my kids grow up, they have a great need, and in fact, they learn and understand by repetition in the same things. Right? I would at times get tired because I'd go into my son or my daughter's room and say, "What book do you want to read?" Hoping beyond hope that it was not the same book that we'd read for the last month and a half every night, but yet that's what they wanted, and they learned and loved and grew comfort in that, hearing their father's voice in these familiar words in a loving way, something that children need. And when they have that, when they have that stability, someone who's there with them all the time, they have that comfort and they tend to grow, they tend to be nourished, they tend to feel 
comfortable, comfortable enough to begin to break out and try their own things and feel comfortable doing things because they know they have someone who loves them so much they're going to read whatever story they want each night before they go to bed. Those are all things that really, really help a kid and make sense from the things you were saying, right? With all the statistics, having that core group of people that love you with all their heart and you know as a child that they would do anything to make your life better, that's got to be a place where you can grow. You're nurtured. You can learn. You can experiment. You can try. And you know that God loves you. You know that God's smack in the middle of that relationship. It's, uh, it's something that's, that's, that's wonderful, yeah? Oh, absolutely. I mean, just thinking about it just from a very, oh, I don't know, uh, just a very superficial kind of way, just looking at it from a very superficial way. When you have situations where there are these different parental partnerships, are you not talking about a case where you've got a few people with a great amount of love and you're exchanging that for a larger quantity of people maybe with uh, a love that's less intense in degree. You bet. If you have multiple parental partnerships by the time, if you have three of these by the time you're 15, would that the message that you receive as a child be one where, well, you know, that first, the people in that first partnership, well, they really didn't love each other enough to stay together. It wasn't a continuing love. It wasn't an unending Love. When you're talking about the Trinity, the one thing you know is that love never ends. It never ends. So the question that we've got that we're going to explore in this program is how do you get a little bit of that kind of love into our human relationships? So we're, we're going to get to there. We're going to get to that. Because uh, what we're about on this program is um, what we're going to call the new extended family. And in actuality, it's a very old, it's not really new, it's a very old concept of an extended family. But as I say, we'll get there. And if you think that's a tease, okay, yeah. Sure, <laughs> why not? So um, anyways, now the funny thing, uh, and we'll finish off Mr. Brooks' article with this. The funny thing is that towards the end of his article, it's a very long kind of piece, about 20, 20 pages, it goes into an in-depth sort of examination of this whole issue. But anyways, towards the end of the article, uh, what he talks about is new ways that people are trying to build back an extended family. Um, psychologists and sociologists have terms for these types of things. They're called, for example, quote, forged families or, quote, fictive kin. Um, you know, he talks about, uh, you know, for example, a healthcare worker, a healthcare ex executive in New Orleans started a program. Um, and like on one, after, one Saturday afternoon, she had 35 kids hanging around her own house. And she asked them why they were spending a lovely day at the home of a middle-aged woman. Obviously, the, people, the kids are not related to her, so it's a new kind of extended family. They replied, quote, you were the first person who ever opened the door. In Salt Lake City, for example, there's a thing called the Other Side Academy, where serious felons live in a group home and then work at a shared business um, and so on and so forth. Well, yeah, and then and Mr. Brooks also talks about, you know, for example, in the 1980s in San Francisco, is where, in San Francisco, we have gay men and women uh, living together in new types of households. And he talks about all these things as their efforts to create, uh, recreate 
uh, some new kind of an extended family. Well, you know, these um, social organizations, this academy in Salt Lake City and this woman, you know, who started sort of like this, this group home for kids uh, in New Orleans, these aren't new concepts. Um, does the name Boys Town mean anything? I mean, those types of places, orphanages, you know, charitable kind of homes, those have been around as long as, well, at least as long as Christianity. And I'm sure, you know, in some forms uh, older than that. That's not new. Uh, but, you know, the point that he makes is that people still have a yearning um, for what they can get, the support they can get from um, a family, however extended or whatever kind of form uh, it may take. For example, um, one sociologist was uh, doing a study on uh, the gay and, and lesbian uh, people in San Francisco, and uh, she writes that most gay and lesbians insisted that family members are people who are there for you, people you can count on emotionally and materially. They take care of me, said one man. I take care of them. So um, without going into, you know, the the aspects of the, the hetero, you know, homosexual lifestyle um, and the same-sex lifestyle and all the rest of that, because that's you know for another program. The simple point is that there is this desire for uh, you know a, a, a you know a community. There is a, a desire for other people. We need the concern, the care, and the support of other people. And if you don't have some type of you know, family relationship that is created by blood, you look for it. You look for it. You search for it. You need it. You need to find it in other ways. So that's common. All right. So if that's common, um, then um, how can we find it? You know, what, what can we look for? You know, how do we, how do we find love? Because really what you're talking about is, you know, where can you find love? Uh, and you know, the, it's also very common that I suppose the best expression of love uh, here with, you know, among humans is a mother's love. That's also a very common kind of a belief that a mother's love is intense. A mother's love is, you know, the strongest, maybe the most perfect, you know, form of, of love that we can find from other humans. And like I said, if our goal is to find, you know, loving relationships among humans that we're searching for, and how do we find it? Well, why don't we start? Why don't we start? Why don't I, as a starting place, why don't we talk about a mother's love? What's special about it? And so on. And uh, it's true that it is very common. It's universal. Everybody, um, and what, you know, usually, you know, has some kind of a sense or desire for the love of uh, a mother. It's not something that is exclusive to any particular religion, any particular historical error, era, uh, not particular to any geographic area. It's universal. Take, for example, an earthquake in China back in 2011. After the earthquake had, uh, had ended, rescuers, of course, were coming through the rubble. They came upon a young woman's house, and they, 
they saw some cracks in the, the walls of this house or what was left of this house, and they saw a dead body of a woman inside. And it was strange, this, this figure of this woman that they saw. She was kneeling, and her body was leaning forward, and her two hands were like out in front of her, trying to, you know, support, like, like they were supporting something. So they left. Um, they did a little examination, and they determined that she was dead. And so they left. There's nothing they thought they could do for her. Uh, no, I mean, no sense wasting a lot of time and effort to try to comb through this rubble and, and pull this woman out. I'm sure they were uh, thinking that there's lots there are, of other people that other, might still be alive. Right, there's others to go help. But the leader of this particular rescue team had something that was annoying at him and compelling him to go back. So he did. And for some reason, he felt around with his hands. He stuck his hands through the cracks on this wall and, and examined what was underneath this woman. And he screamed, a child. There is a child here. What they found was a three-month little boy. And he was wrapped in a flowery blanket. And um, what they realized is that when her house was falling, she used her body to make a cover and protect her son. She put him under her, and as she was extending her hands, trying to hold the wall back, whatever she was trying to do, apparently when they found this little boy, he was still sleeping peacefully. And then a medical doctor came, and um, he found a cell phone next to this woman. And on this cell phone, there was a text message. And here's what it said. If you can survive, you must remember that I love you. Hmm. A woman sacrificing her life for her child. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely beautiful. And, you know, each one of us thinks of that love with, with, with mom. They, not all of them work out, obviously. Uh, there are some very difficult situations. But... Um, that's sort of what you think of when you think of a mother's love, someone who is just absolutely... Will give anything. They'll give, give anything. anything. Yep. They'll give anything for you. Um, so that's the love that flows from a mother to a child. How about a story about love flowing from a child to the mother? Remember we talked about true love, like the love that exists with the Trinity, being a love that is mutually exchanged. Well, here's one. Man happened to stop at a flower shop to order some flowers to be wired to his mother who lived 200 miles away. I know, like 1-800, you know, stopped in, you know, 1-800 flowers or whatever it was um, for Mother's Day. He was going to buy some flowers for her for Mother's Day. So he got out of his car, and he's walking into the shop, and he noticed a young girl sitting on the curb, and she was crying. Well, he asked her why. She said, I wanted to buy a red rose for my mother, but I only have 75 cents, and the rose costs two dollars. The man smiled and said, come on in with me. <laughs> I've got the two dollars. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll buy you a rose. He bought the little girl a rose, and then he ordered his own mother's flowers. As they were leaving, he offered the little girl a ride home. She said, yes, please. You can take me to my mother. Well, they, they drove, and the girl directed him where to go, and she directed him to a cemetery where she placed this one rose on a freshly dug grave. Oh, my. 
Oh, and my. After this, the man returned to the flower shop. He canceled the wire order, okay, and drove the 200 miles. To see Mom. Yeah. Yeah. My goodness. What a, what a story. Um, what, what that meant to him and the love of that child for um, her mother had to just be striking for him and make him think about mom and think about all the things that used to happen. It must have been absolutely marvelous for him thinking of that and how this little girl inspired him to go see mom. That's, uh, that's absolutely beautiful. It's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful story. But you can find lots of these kinds yeah. of stories. That's the thing. Now, if you've been listening to all this and then wondering, okay, so where's the St. Paul letter? I, I wondered that. <laughs> did, 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 did you? <laughs> but you're not one to criticize. No, I, I tried to. You were thinking it. I was thinking it, but I stayed quiet. <laughs> okay, so here's, uh, here's what St. Paul uh, would tell us, perhaps, if he was here today. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. If one part is honored, all the parts share its joy. Now you are Christ's body and individually parts of it. This is true love. You've got the mother in China, um, and, uh, you know, her son, her child was going to suffer, so she suffered instead. You've got this little child who's buying a rose for her mother to pay honor to her mother. Now you've got a man who decides, well, yeah, I've got to, I've got to share some of that joy with my mother. Mm. Um, Paul understood love. And there's a reason why he understood love, because it was a love that exists through Christ. The real love, the true love, the, the, the greatest love that we can find, that we can experience, that we can feel, that we can share, is one that has its origin in Christ, in the Father, in the Holy Spirit. If we can feel that love that God has for us, we can share that love as a mother. We can share that love with our mother. And if we can do that, we can share it with other people. As far as you want to extend your family, you can share that kind of love. But if you're going to do a really good job of trying to extend love to everybody in your family, whatever form that family may take, however big or small your blood family, your blood relationship-based family might be, if you're going to do a really good job of sharing love, and we, we all need to be able to do a good job of that. We all have struggles and, and times in our, in our families where we don't do well. And if we're going to live up to what a family can provide to other people, that support that it can provide other people so that it can always, so the people in that, in that family can always be there for the other person, then we have to understand and feel uh, really what is true love, the best kind of love. And that's why I think it's, it's good to start with a mother's love. That's, that is, as these stories show, an intense love. And why is that? Well, I mean, you know that the mother, a mother loves you before you were born, just like God's love. And uh, a mother's love doesn't quit, just like God's love. And a mother's love can be strong and intense and you know, deeper than we can imagine, just like God's love. So it's probably a good, a good place to start with mothers to examine and consider this question of love. 
Okay. All that being said, what about this new extended family that we promised to share with people? Well, here it is. We can go to the Gospel of John because Christ created one. He was on the cross. Some of the very last words that he expressed with human breath in this world were, ha- were, the, were ones he expressed hanging from the cross in excruciating pain and agony. Um, he was there and standing by, the, he was on the cross and standing by the cross, according to John in this gospel, uh, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary of Magdala. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. All right? Now, we've all heard that passage lots of times. What do we get from it? How do we understand that? I mean, there were different ways to interpret that passage. A lot of people interpret it differently. Um, I found one account uh, by a, a Protestant minister, but it's not. This is not exclusive to uh, people of uh, non-Catholic, you know, Christian faiths. There's lots. There are lots of you know Catholic interpretations that look at that and say, "Hey, you know, uh, what he's what he wants is for John to take care of Mary. She's a widow. Now she doesn't have a son. There's nobody to protect her." You know, and so on. And that's that's very, what, very practical. It's a practical kind mm-hmm. of an interpretation. Yep. Sounds engineering like. Okay. Yep. Um, but that might be a shortcoming though. <laughs> 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 so anyways. Um, but if you go, for example, onto the USCCB website and you look up this particular passage, you'll find a footnote. And um, that footnote uh, talks about the fact that this can also be interpreted uh, very symbolically, as if Mary is representative of the entire church, the church meaning all of the followers of Christ, that she is a representative of that. It's much bigger than just a practical kind of a thing. Um, this, is a, this, is, this is a relationship now that has a heavenly kind of a connection, a very spiritual heavenly kind of creation, connection that is created by Christ and would continue through Christ, through, the, through his power. If Mary is the mother of the church, therefore the mother of all of us, it's with a grace and a power that she's allowed to have because of these words from Christ on the cross. You know, we believe that words matter. Now, we say that a lot in our culture today. Words, words have meaning. Words matter. Well, when those words come from God, they matter a lot. You go back to the very first you know, book of the, of the Bible. And how does God create things? With words. Let there be light. Let there be this. Let there be that. God thinks it, uh, and whether that word is verbally expressed or mentally expressed, but just a word in the mind of God creates something. Words from Christ matter. Christ told his, uh, his apostles, 
You know, whatever you bound on earth is bound on earth. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. And we have the right of uh, the sacrament of, of reconciliation because of that, because we think these words matter. That, uh, you know, for example, Christ says at the Last Supper, this is my body, this is my blood, take this and eat this. Uh, and, you know, the Gospel of John, chapter 6, he says, unless you eat my blood, you know, unless you, you know, eat my flesh and, and drink my blood, you have no life within you. We believe these words really matter, and they do. There are scores of Eucharistic miracles that attest to the reality of Christ being really present in the Eucharist. Words matter. So when Christ is on the cross and he says, you know, behold, this is your mother, who's he talking to? He's talking to John. And who is John now at this moment in time? John is one of the apostles. He's also somebody who was there at the Last Supper. I'm going to play amateur theologian here, so anyway, bear with me. So John's at the Last Supper. He receives the Eucharist. If these words matter, if the words that Christ said at the Last Supper, hey, this is my, this is my body, this is, this is my blood, which is going to be offered for you, for the, you know, offered for you and for everybody else for the forgiveness of sins. Um, if those words are real, then John, after having received this bread, received the body of Christ. If you receive the body of Christ, are you not, at, a, at an absolute minimum, connected now with Christ? Are you not part of this body of Christ that we refer to? Are you not part of the church, which is the body of Christ? Um, and the funny thing about it is, who else was connected to the body of Christ? I mean, Christ uses strange words. This bread is my body, he says. Uh, why does he have to, And we have the, the Eucharist at Mass now, and we believe that it's the flesh and blood. Why is it that Christ has to communicate his presence to us? in the form of a human body, of human flesh, of human blood. Well, to communicate with us and give us the messages of salvation, he came down from heaven and took human form. There is, you know, it's a mystery, and I, I'm only an amateur theologian, so I can't begin to understand it. But we know that that's what he did. There's a reason. He has a reason why he decided that he was going to communicate to us um, connect with us in a bodily, human bodily form. Well, who's the first person that he did that with? He was really connected with the body of Mary, Mary you was, was he not? And so on the cross now, he tells John, this is your mother. He tells somebody who has received his body. He tells somebody that this person is your mother who is also connected to his body, his flesh, his blood. Is there not maybe something more than just this practical statement, hey, take care of her for me, will you please? Is there not something real here, something very spiritual, something very powerful? Um, this is on the cross. These are some of his last words. Is he going to waste words on simple things? I mean, might not John have taken care of her anyway? Did he have to tell John to take care of her? 
So if there is something very special, something very spiritual going on here, then what happens next? Okay, so John's an apostle. What does he do? Well, like the other apostles, the other people who were there at the Last Supper, he says Mass. He distributes the Eucharist to other people. And so on and on we have had for 2,000 years to the point now where there are Masses being said all over the world, all hours of the day. This is um, this legacy that Christ has left us. So when they distribute the body of Christ and they connect people all around the world to the to Christ's body perhaps they're also connecting people to Mary perhaps when we share in Christ's body we share something else that Christ's body shares which is this connection to his mother perhaps we share in that motherly love the motherly love of Mary. What if, for our new extended family, we all believed and felt in our heart that Mary was not just some mother up in heaven, but she is our mother, our personal, individual, at the same time, um, you know, at the same time as everybody else can make the same claim, our individual mother, that she cares for us with the same kind of a mother's love that this woman in China had for her baby that she cradled underneath her. Now, the, will, the desire to, you know, the willingness to give anything, to suffer anything. What if we could feel that motherly love, not only from our own human mother, and hopefully we, we do have that uh, experience from our human mother, and perhaps this is even more important. If you don't have that experience from your own mother, then perhaps what comes next is even more important. But perhaps in addition or in place of or, you know, because we don't have it from a human mother, perhaps what if, what if we could experience this kind of motherly love from the mother of God? What kind of problems would we have that we couldn't cope with? The gay people in San, in San Francisco in the 1980s said something about you know, this other person always being there for me so that I can feel support from that person. So what? So I can cope with the troubles that I have. Well, if you had and knew and understood that you really did have the love of the mother of God, what could you not cope with? What problem could you not face? What love could you not share with somebody else? If we all felt that, would we have any problems? amongst ourselves in, the, in this world. And if we have problems amongst ourselves in this world, is it because we're not looking for that love? I mean, Christ, you know, it's, it's, it's sad. Christ said, you know, if you ask, you shall receive. We're not going to feel the love of Mary unless we look for it, um, unless we pray to her, unless we pray to her to pray to her son that we can feel that kind of love. But if we do start to look for it, and you do it sincerely, then, you know, she's, I mean, look, she's the mediatrix of all graces. She is, she is the wonderful, for me, Ray, she's a wonderful person that, as you said, represents each one of us with our mother. 
we feel comfortable because the time we spent with our mother praying to her. But she has never, in anything she said or visited, has ever said, pray to me because of me. No. She says, pray to me so I can take it to my son, so I can bring it to God. And so she is Because she knows more than any of us who he who really he, is. Who he is. And yeah. she has this opportunity for us who feel comfortable with a mother's love to bring things to her that will be transferred to God to God, her son, because she knows about that. And what a wonderful thing that is. I, I know, you know, we go to Assumption Church, and, and I'm there a lot of times before church, especially in the morning on the weekdays. And there's a big, beautiful statue right outside the front door of Mary, way up at the top near the roof. And I go up and I get to look upon Mary, and I ask her to take my pain and my love and everything else to her son. She can do that. She has that capability. She has that love. She can do that for us. And with my mother having passed away, what a wonderful thing that is for me to see Mary as my mother and allow her to take my difficulties and those sort of things and bring them to her son in a, in a loving, caring way the way she does. It is a wonderful extended family to have her as a part of that, right? It is just absolutely beautiful to have her in that role, and what a wonderful role that is. It's beautiful, and it's more than beautiful. Yeah. How do you learn to love? Have you ever prayed to Christ, um, show me how to love you? Show, to how, show me how to love you with my whole heart. Show me how to give you more than I've been giving so far. Have you ever prayed that to Christ? How about you pray that to his mother to ask her to show you how to love you know, her son? You can feel the love of Mary, and that's beautiful. But how do we then, once we experience that love, how do we turn around and give it? The Trinity is circular love. You receive, and then you need to give, and then you give. Um, for us, we receive, and then we need to give. If we're given a gift, you know, we need to give. So how do we learn to love other people? Well, if we start with a mother's love, then let's start with maybe trying to love Mary, trying to give that love back, that intense love back. And if we can do that, you know, how are you not going to be able to love her son? How are you not going to be able to love other people that her son has taken into you know, this, this body of Christ that he's created? Um, you know, Paul says, if one part suffers, we all suffer. every part mm -hmm. suffers. So how do you learn to love? How about if you try to feel the other person's suffering? If one part suffers, every part suffers. If you feel what that other part suffers. If you suffer yourself, there's, you know, maybe not any higher form of love. Why did Christ have to die so brutally on the cross? He suffered for us so that we would perhaps feel his suffering. It is no small thing to be told often, you know, meditate on the sufferings of Christ. If you want to have a feeling in your heart for Christ, Think about what he suffered for you. So anyways, if all that is, is so, 
if you want to really learn to love, if you want to, how, how about trying to focus on the sufferings of Mary? There is a, a chaplet of rosary, um, centuries old, I don't know how far back the tradition goes. It's called The Seven Sorrows of Mary. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the sorrows of Mary, you know what happens? You get closer to her. You start to feel what she felt. You start to understand what she was going through, what she thought, what she experienced. You get closer to her. And then when that happens, you feel love for her. And that's the starting point. And then you're off and running. What are some of these seven sorrows of Mary? For example, the first one is the prophecy of Simeon. Mm-hmm. There's great jo- It's funny, it's like in some of these stories, there's great joy, and at the same time, there's, there's suffering. It's this thing of human suffering. We can't, why, why is there human suffering? Why did Christ have to suffer? It's a curious thing. It's a mystery, but that's, there it is. There's joy and there's suffering at the same time. Anyways, so here you have Simeon holding the baby high, giving praise and thanks to God that he's allowed him to see the Messiah before Simeon has to end, you know, before Simeon's life has ended. Before his time on this earth is gone, he gets to see the Messiah. Thank you, God. But he doesn't stop there. Mm-mm. He tells Mary that this, that this child of hers is, is born um, and will be a, a symbol that many will accept and many will reject. This, part, this, this child of hers, it, this, this great, not this Messiah, that God's given him the, the great you know, benefit of seeing, um, is going to be rejected by many people. She tells him it's a newborn little baby. And then he goes further. Right? Not only is Christ going to suffer, but Mary's going to suffer. He tells her, a sword will pierce you. It'll pierce your heart, it'll pierce your soul. A sword will pierce you. You're a newborn mother. Talk about you know having postpartum depression or something like that. I mean, you know, you've got this 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 mother, this newborn child, this happy time. And there's this warning, this this you know message of you know foreboding. Well, how does she deal with that? Well, how do you think she feels when she when she experiences that? I mean, there's um, there's an acceptance of that. I mean, what would Mary do other than uh, what she did when the, Gabriel first came to her and announced that? You know, she was going to have this son. Fine, be it done unto me according to her will. That's who she was. That's what, you know, that's, that's what she would have experienced at this moment as well. All right? She if, took it into her heart. If that's and, God's will. Yeah, and knew that that was going to happen, that that was prophesied. How about the next sorrow, the flight into Egypt? Uh, Joseph gets a message in a dream. Rise and leave for Egypt. In other words... You know, don't take your time packing. When you wake up from this sleep, get up and go. Danger. Danger around every corner. There are soldiers hunting for you. You're a young mother. You know, you're, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're traveling. And around the next bend in the road or around the next, you know, corner of a building, is there going to be a soldier there? Is there going to be a soldier there with a sword? Is there going to be more than one soldier there? And if there is, there's no way for you to pre- prevent that soldier from doing what the king has commanded that soldier to do. They're going to take the life of your young baby, your helpless little infant. What tremendous fear she must have had. What concern for her son. I mean, that's the kind of 
total, that concern, that worry would have consumed her. It's a mother's worry. It would have consumed her as if, you know, somebody wants to take her life. The child's life would have been more important than, than her own life. That's the kind of worry, that's the kind of feeling that she would have had in her heart. These are some, you know, then you go, for example, you know, later on, he's, you know, she receives his body. After he's killed brutally on the cross, she's mm-hmm. holding this body. It's racked, it's bloody, it's disfigured, it's gone through a horrifying experience. You know, what, what would she be thinking? Would she be thinking perhaps back to one? he was just this clean, pure, mm. little infant with this sweet little face? Would she not have thought back, okay, that's how it started and now it's come to this? Uh, what kind of, you know, what kind of horrible, you know, piercing pain would she have felt in her heart and her soul? You know, and then, of course, when they lay him in the tomb, and then she has to walk away from that tomb. Mm. She's leaving her son. For the first time since he was born, now she's alone in the world. What kind of separation would you have felt at that point? Still knowing, of course, that you know that he is that he is that he is God, and and so forth. But still, he no longer breathes. He no longer can you know talks to you like 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 he had. Um, just this tremendous pain. And as you pray on these and meditate on these and think think about these sorrows in Mary's heart, and meditate on the fact that above it all and through it all, she resigned herself to whatever God willed you begin to get closer to her. You begin to feel how she loves. And if you let yourself feel that she is your mother and think for a moment, even a short, simple, brief, passing little moment, that she has a similar or maybe absolutely the same kind of love for you, what can't you cope with? What can't you live with? And if we all had that, we all understood Mary has that kind of love for us, that she is our mother. And why? Because Christ made it so. Simeon told her, a sword will pierce your heart so that the thoughts of many will be revealed. Revealed to who? Revealed to God? Why would they, you know, why, why would not God have that, that power before that? perhaps revealed to Mary. Why would thoughts in the hearts of people need to be revealed to Mary? So we can pray to her, so that she can feel what's going on in her lives, so that she can understand, and so that she can then pray to her son for us, so that she can pray to her son for us with a mother's love, with her immense love, you know, I mean, she, I mean, thoughts revealed to her so that she can pray for us. If we understand that, if we feel that, um, how comforting it is. We've got an advocate to Christ who is the ultimate advocate. Um, and if we all felt that, would we have the problems that our families are in this world? Would that not be the message that St. Paul would want to tell us? 
If one part suffers, every part suffers. If you want to learn to love, think about the sufferings of Mary. You will learn to love, you will feel love, you will extend love. And that's, I think, a message St. Paul would want to tell us. Well, that's been our program uh, for today. And uh, we're going to leave you, as we always do, with a prayer. And as we always do, we're going to ask our deacon in training. Bob, if you would, please lead us in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, thanks for your love, the love that you share with your Son through the Holy Spirit, the circle of love that goes on between you. It is the greatest thing in the world, and we get to be just a part of it. We also thank you for Mary the woman that you chose to bear your son, to bring him into the world and to be with him and to love him and support him, to teach him and allow him to grow and flourish and become our Savior. We thank you for the fact that you allow us to talk to Mary, to bring our hurt, our pain, our difficulties to our mother and allow her to bring them to your son and you. You set up this whole world with so many ways to talk, to love, and to communicate. And we thank you for that because we, we are people that struggle. We are people that suffer. We are people that don't know what to do at any particular time, but you give us all the answers that are all right there in the Scripture and allow us to one day share that love with you in heaven. It's almost an unbelievable thing. Allow us to truly look forward to that, to know that that is what we pursue. We pursue heaven and being with you and your Son and the Holy Spirit. And we pray all this in the name of that Son, who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, Son the Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Amen. We thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.